Hi, this is Chris Mayer, and this is the third step on our journey towards a theory of space power on the ancient art of modern warfare. Now, before I go on, I want to say that if you have not seen the recruiting advertisement for the U.S. Space Forces, stop listening right now, put it on pause, come back, and go watch that. It is probably the best recruiting advertisement I have ever seen in my 40 years of government service. Strongly recommended, very inspiring, and gives us a hint of the direction that we are moving on. Okay, now that you're back, let's resume. Now, the last podcast was a very high-level discussion, very theoretical, very philosophical, about what warfare, the theory of warfare is. And it included things like, you know, uh, war is a political act that is intended to create so much pain for the enemy that he'd rather give in to our demands than continue to resist, and various principles such as objective, mass, maneuver, economy of force, and unity of command. Let me take a step down from that mountaintop and talk about military theory in terms of real-world application. It is the 5th of June, 1944. The Allies have been fighting at sea and in the air for five years, but that night, 160,000 Allied soldiers have left England en route to France. The Allies have spent two years marshalling the troops, equipment, supplies, and transportation necessary to land at a decisive time and place on the French coast to begin the end of the Second World War. In preparation for this, the land forces, air forces, and naval forces of 15 Allied nations were placed under one commander, General Dwight David Eisenhower. Decisive objectives were identified. The invading land forces will maneuver by multiple sea and air routes to converge on and secure decisive landing zones. Careful intelligence identified the location of German units, equipment, and fortifications, and just as importantly, effective counterintelligence kept the Germans from learning those things about the Allies. This enabled complete operational surprise. As the German commander in the Normandy area, Field Marshal Erwin Rommel remarked two months before that night, the next 24 hours will be decisive. They will determine whether or not the Allies will be able to exert the land power dominance that will be necessary to restore peace to Europe. So joining me here again today is Colonel Rob Waring. And Rob, I just said that land power dominance was necessary to restore peace to Europe. But why is land power dominance essential for victory? Well, Chris, only land forces can exercise direct, continuing, discriminant, and comprehensive control over land, people, and resources. Well, okay, can you explain that just a little bit more? Well, land is where the people live. It's where the industrial base is. It's where the agriculture is. It's where everything happens that's important to people. Air power can come in and perform precision strikes, but it takes land forces to go in, seize, hold, and control the population and terrain and threaten the very existence of the enemy. Since in military theory and land power theory being one of those, we're looking at things that are enduring, not things which are just valuable for today or what we anticipate for tomorrow. So looking at Historically, what land power offers, what are the unique attributes that land power has that make it different from air and sea power and maybe space power 
and are essential for accomplishing those goals you just described? Okay, it starts with boots on the ground. We're there. We can defend. We can attack. We can block. We can secure the effects of other domains. We can do direct combat with the opposing land forces. Those are all things that land forces do. Land combat makes permanent the temporary effects of the other do- of other operations. As you were describing that, it occurred to me that land power, in addition to those major combat operations you just described, has a certain amount of versatility to it that the other domains may not have. Robert Heinlein, in his book, Starship Troopers, and before I go on, for anybody who's listening to this, if you've ever seen the movie Starship Troopers, please, please, please forget everything you learn from watching that movie because it has absolutely nothing to do from the book. Actually, the book is like 180 degrees out. The only thing that's the same between the movie and the book are the names of the characters, but please read it. It's an excellent study in leadership. But in that book, he wrote, if your objective is to remove every red-headed, left-handed male, only infantry can do that, not aerial, or in his term, space bombardment, or any other means. It's got to be something where you actually have those, as you described, Rob, boots on the ground and the persistence. That's right, Chris. You just described the versatility of land forces. We're there. We can take prisoners. We can free civilian populations or even feed civilian populations. There's a lot of things that we can do by having a presence on the ground and establishing these basis operations for air and sea power operations. So what we, to recap, the unique attributes, the unique capabilities that land power brings to military theory, to the military art, that makes it different and essential from other domains is the fact that it does have that persistence, that it does seize, hold, control populations and terrain, not just destroying them. Right. The key is we provide a presence and assurance. A presence because we're there. We can affect what's going on by being there. And we assure our allies because we're in it with them. We're there. Thank you, Rob. Although land power dominance is essential for victory, it's not sufficient. Land power can't operate alone. To go back to D-Day, those 160,000 troops could not land on the beaches by themselves. It needed support from sea power with 7,000 ships and other vessels, including battleships, cruisers, and destroyers providing fire support, transport ships and landing craft to get them to the beaches, and minesweepers to assure that those transports could make it across the channel. In the air power domain, 12,000 Allied aircraft supported the operation. Almost half of these performed parachute and glider operations, landing troops and equipment, The other half protected the convoys and beaches from German air attack, bombed targets near the coast, and attacked German armored forces attempting to reach the beachheads. But even this could not have happened without achieving dominance or at least superiority in the sea and air domains in the weeks and months before D-Day. Allied sea power had to provide reasonable assurance that troops and supplies could reach England from the United States. The English Channel had to be secured against attacks by German submarines, torpedo boats, and the threat from the remaining German battlecruisers. Air superiority over the Channel allowed the Allies to carry out aerial reconnaissance, giving them vital intelligence on German coastal defenses. 
bombardment of railways, bridges, and airfields in France restricted the ability of the German military to quickly react to Allied attack. The strategic bombing campaign disrupted fuel supplies and, more importantly, forced the retreat of German air power to defend their homeland. Today, these would be called shaping operations, setting the conditions necessary for decisive land power action. Land power success still depends on success in the other domains, doing many of the same things. The opening fires of Operation Desert Storm actually came from World War II-era battleships, the USS Missouri and the USS Wisconsin. Air and sea power were necessary to even get U.S. land forces to the battlefield, while air power disrupted Iraqi command and control, isolated the battlefield from the arrival of Iraqi reinforcements, and kept Iraqi armored columns from escaping. But what lessons can we learn from this as we move towards considering space power? Are any of these attributes also applicable to the space domain? For example, what about persistence? Is that also a space power attribute? How about versatility? How does space power contribute to land power dominance in its traditional roles? Moving on from that, is current and future land power dominance dependent on space power dominance? These are questions that a space power theory must address. But before we can do that, there are two other military domains we need to look at. So come back again for our next step along that path on the ancient art of modern warfare.